There's always something exciting about getting to gather together as a church family on the Lord's Day, and particularly when we get to gather and celebrate around the Lord's table. For me, honestly, it feels much like coming home. I can think of many fond memories of my own biological family and family by marriage where everyone has come home. Almost always it's for a particular purpose or a particular occasion. We come home for Christmas or Easter or Thanksgiving or weddings. In any case, we come with this purpose in mind and we come to share with our family in whatever reason or season that has prompted us to make the pilgrimage. This particularly hits home for me living far away from my family. My nearest family lives five hours away. And to spend time together and to join together in such a way requires some concerted effort, especially with the pile of kids to try and work out the trip with. And there's this sense of circumstance. There's pomp to coming home. It's like, okay, this is a big deal. On Sundays, you and I, we come home. And it's a blessing to me to be able to, I might not be able to see my biological family or my in-laws on a weekly basis, but I do get to meet with my family every week. We all come home together. We gather with our family. We share in the celebration and worship of our Lord And many of you will have recognized that one of my favorite terms for my fellow believers is brother or sister, and that's intentional on my part because there's something to me about reminding myself even in conversation of the family bond that binds us together. It seems to put things in right perspective. Even when I disagree with one of you, my brothers or sisters, Even just calling one another brother or sister reminds us that I grew up with a younger sister. I did not agree with her on all terms, and she did not agree with me on all terms, and sometimes we made it very clear to each other that we disagreed with each other. But one way or another, she was still sister and I was still brother, and that was the relationship. And with each one of you, we are still family, even if we don't agree. Also calling one another brother or sister seems to remind me of the one, the reason why we get to call each other brother and sister in the first first place. That as far as we can tell that each other has received the adoption of sonship through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. This morning, I hope that we will see some new things about the family bonds that tie us together in Christ, and in doing so, that we will glorify the one who has given us this family. I ask that you would start turning with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. We'll be starting in verse 1, and once you get a chance to get there, we'll pray, and then we'll read from Hebrews 13. Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, 
to come before you and to call you Father is right. To come and recognize that Jesus Christ was not ashamed to call us brothers is amazing. To gather together with people of such diverse backgrounds from countries around the world, from provinces across Canada, from life backgrounds so divergent from our own, and to be able to call one another brother and sister is so encouraging. For Lord, you have given us a thing on which to base our unity. We have all been put on a level playing field before you because of the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, and each one of our desperate need for salvation from our own sins and the righteousness of Christ to stand before you. So Lord, as we worship together, we ask that you would help us to see one another in that light and to worship you for putting us there, to thank you for the adoption that you've given us if we have placed our faith in you. Lord, we trust these words to you. We ask that your word would speak clearly to our hearts by your Holy Spirit and that you would guide and direct us, keep us focused, and give us the clarity of thought and mind and heart to receive what you have given us in your word and to think of ways that we can even put it into practice in our own lives starting today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 13, starting in verse 1 and going to verse 6. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? This is God's Word. And with this passage, we officially hit the home stretch in Hebrews, a series that we started together back in April of 2020. This last chapter is filled with all manner of parting wisdom from our author. And this opening section talks about brotherly love and combines some seemingly quite divergent topics under that heading. But much has been made throughout this letter of the idea of family. Throughout the book, our author has referred to his audience as brothers. Therefore, holy brothers, take care, brothers, and the like. And he says that these brothers have been identified as brothers 
ultimately because Christ has made them his brothers. From chapter 2, starting in verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. It is because we all have one source, one hope, one salvation, that we can call one another brothers, and that Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers. If we have found our sanctification in Christ and we have been called brothers of Christ, then we have joined the family of God, adopted children of the King. We must then learn how to behave as such. I remember one of the most unique things about getting married was having to learn a new family. All of a sudden, I was a part of another family unit. Don't get me wrong, my in-laws were always very kind and welcoming to me when I was getting to know them and dating Sherry, but there was always kind of a wall there, kind of this far and no further, you're not part of the family. But starting when I had received Brian's blessing and kind of growing when we were officially engaged, and then once the ceremony was over and Sherry and I were married, I was no longer an outsider. I was a part of the family. To Sherry's parents, I was a son. To Sherry's siblings, I was a brother in every sense of the word. I was treated as such. So now I had to learn how to act as a brother or a son in the Fink family with all of their existing relationships and customs and quirks. I absolutely love my in-laws, but they are not my original family. So there was a learning curve there. So as dramatic as that transition was, the transition for us into the family of God is even more dramatic. Because when I got married... I simply added another family to my existing family. But when we join the family of Christ, part of the deal is that all of the other bonds, all of the other families that we would call our own fall to a distant second place. We become Christians first and everything else a far-flung second. And from that moment on, we start learning what it is to live our lives as part of this new family. Reprogramming in our heads and our hearts how we used to do things. What scriptures call the life of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, and discovering how it means to act in brotherly love towards one another. And... Scripture is bursting with how believers are to act towards one another. 
even just me saying one another. The Greek term for one another, alelon, is there's over a hundred instances of that in the New Testament alone. And that's usually translated as one another, often giving instructions as to how Christians should treat or act towards each other. But the word used in our passage today for brotherly love is even closer and more dear, and it's one that surprisingly will likely be very familiar to all of us. When I say the city of brotherly love, most of you will think of Philadelphia. And that's because that is the Greek word. And that is what it means, brotherly love. There's sometimes this misconception that we as believers are just to become these people of unfettered and universal love. Love without distinction or degree, without judgment or criteria, without qualification. We are just becoming people of love, and that is it. And while Jesus did remind us that we are to be loving, even to the point of loving our enemies and loving those who persecute us and hate us, he did not do away with the distinctions of who and how we love one another. Even last week, I reminded us that just to be aware that any normal, everyday person that you meet is an intentional creation of the Most High God and a bearer of His image. It reminded us how we should carry a level of awe and reverence for our fellow man just based on that account alone. But the love that we have for one another, for the church, for Christians in general, goes beyond that. There's a peculiar love for our fellow brothers and sisters and is reserved for and defining of those in the family. From John 13, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Just a sidebar here, I love that every week I get to talk with our worship teams and give just a brief, okay, this is the passage we're talking on, this is the general topic. And then I go on to write my sermon, and then I show up on Sunday, and they sing songs that completely tie in. That is a wonderful example of God's faithfulness and the faithful ministry of our worship team. So thanks to my worship team for that. But anyways, this Philadelphia love is reserved for and defining of those in the family. I want you to remember that these Hebrew believers that are receiving this letter, they are facing great persecution. None of them, from what we can understand in Hebrews 12.4, none of them had paid in blood yet from among their number. But in Hebrews 10.32-34, we know that these people had endured a hard struggle with sufferings 
sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For they had compassion on those in prison and joyfully accepted the plundering of their property, since they knew that they had a better possession and an abiding one. We all have just gotten through one of the greater crises of our day. And one thing that becomes painfully obvious as we go through the myriad of crises that we're going to experience in our life, it seems we kind of bounce from one to the next in, in our news media and our schedule of life. But as we go through these crises, it brings to light how incredibly difficult it is sometimes to show this brotherly love. Not so much to the people who think exactly like we do, but particularly to the people who would disagree with us. In the midst of trial and tribulation and persecution, it becomes all the more difficult and all the more important to show the kind of love that is meant to be a mark of the brotherhood of Christ. Our author gives these four requirements that define some of what this brotherly love is. First one being hospitality. Second one being care for the persecuted or the mistreated, the imprisoned. Third was honoring the marriage bed. And the fourth was freeing ourselves from the love of money. Like I said, some of these seem to be a little bit divergent from the rest, but we'll get there. But all of these require something of us. And more importantly, all of these are assumed by our author. That's why our author says, let such love continue. There are some who are particularly gifted in areas of displaying these kinds of love. If we even take a second and think about the family here at Elk Point Baptist Church, I know that we will be able to pick out in our minds members who excel in certain areas. But this command to continue in brotherly love is not directed only to those few who are so gifted but to the whole congregation. We cannot point to one family and say, that's our hospitable family. If there's someone who needs a place to stay, that's them. We can't point to another family and say, well, they're really good at caring for those who are persecuted and mistreated. They have a real heart for that. And to another, of this family really shows what it means to honor marriage and the marriage bed. The faithfulness in that family is just amazing. And then another family saying, okay, that, that family could care less about money. Money is not their pursuit at all. They are all about just making sure everyone else is taken care of. We can't point to these different families and, and brush our hands and say, okay, we've got our bases covered. We have those kind of four somewhere in the church. And then move on. It's not a matter of having our bases covered in the whole church. It is a huge blessing to have families in the church that are so gifted in those areas and to be leaders in those areas, but it's meant to be something that all of us display. 
So if these are expected of all of the brothers, let us look briefly at each. First one being hospitality. To show hospitality in the ancient world in particular was no small thing. To fail to show hospitality towards particularly a brother or sister of the same people group or the same sect as you was a black mark on your character that was almost impossible to come back from. So much so that the lack of hospitality was one of the great sins counted against Sodom and Gomorrah in that story. It wasn't the only one, but it was one of them. They were not hospitable people. And this hospitality is expected towards all. But it's particularly to be defining of our brotherly love for the church. The distinct manner when they heard the word hospitality, the idea here was opening your home. Inviting someone in to stay. Inviting someone in for food. And sometimes for an extended period of time. This wasn't a day and time where there were hotels with water slides and continental breakfasts on every street corner along the way. And if you were traveling to a new town, you'd find one. The big, big cities might have an inn or two. But in general, it was expected that you would find someone of kind of your people group and they would give you room. Now think of the dangers that that kind of hospitality posed for a persecuted people group. What better way to ensnare a believer, a follower of the way, than to show up in a new city, unannounced, nobody knows you, and say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Can I stay with you? To go and pose as a believer and stay in their home and Sometimes stay even for an extended period of days and weeks. How much danger did that put them in? I mean, in our context, it might be a little bit hard to wrap our minds around, but I mean, imagine in one of the countries around the world where being a Christian is outright illegal, and someone were to show up in your town and say, Can I have a place to say I'm a Christian? stays for a week, and like Daniel in his hostile country, you continue to worship your God as he has commanded you to do, and they see that and report you to the authorities, and lo and behold, you find yourself in jail. If that hospitality is required of these persecuted Hebrew believers then why do we sometimes shy away from showing that kind of hospitality even in our circles? How many times have we looked at a person and maybe not out loud, but in our hearts thought, well, they're just kind of looking for a handout. Have we ever looked at a person in our midst and wanted to withhold at least some level of help because we doubted that they were truly one of us. I sincerely hope not. But sadly, I imagine whether consciously or otherwise, we probably have. Because we 
have this idea of, well, maybe they're not really Christians. If someone were to come to our church in need, even posing as a believer, they should find a hospitable and welcoming people ready to help however we are able. This is not to say that we allow people to just take advantage and obviously abuse our hospitality. But it does require that we act in good faith. If someone is living a life and displaying by their words and their actions and just obviously, you know what, I'm just taking this church for a ride and seeing how long I can get free food or free lodging or whatever it might be, okay, that's a different discussion. But if someone shows up out of the blue and says, I need help. There's a reason why we are called to show hospitality and that we act in good faith as we do so. And even in those moments where we show hospitality to people of unknown origin or unknown even belief, perhaps we will begin to see lost sheep joining the fold after seeing the way that we as a brotherhood care for those in our midst who are in need. And even if we do find ourselves occasionally taken advantage of or even persecuted for the result of such hospitality, we can repeat with our author from verse 6, which quotes from Psalm 118, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? So, brothers and sisters, open your homes. Open your hearts to people, particularly to the brethren, the people who would claim faith. Invite people into your homes for meals, to stay the night, care for their needs. And don't just do it as a checklist item of, okay, this is something I'm supposed to do. Grumbling hearts going, I don't really want to. I got other things to do. But do so with love. I know that we are a, an incredibly hospitable group of people here. I've been on the receiving end of it. But it's easy to be hospitable to the pastor. Kind of have an idea of where he's at and have an idea that he'll probably be sticking around for a little while. So yeah, invite him over for coffee or lunch or whatever. But there should be no instance where a new face shows up in our midst and that person isn't at least welcomed and perhaps even invited for lunch I mean, I know it's a little bit hard in Elk Point where there is nothing open for lunch. You can invite them for Subway, maybe. And a little bit hard in Elk Point where many of us, it's like, hey, do you want to come for lunch 45 minutes away? But at the same time, we can find ways. You can say, you know what? If you come back next week, why don't I... We'll, we'll bring a lunch and let's have lunch together. Something like that. There's many opportunities. And to show such hospitality is to be defining 
of who we are, of those who confess Christ. So show hospitality. The second one was we are to identify and care for those who are mistreated or imprisoned. Thinking about it from the reader's perspective again, obviously a dangerous action for people who are being persecuted. Like I said, we are not in a particularly dangerous country to be a Christian. But I was, I was thinking of such an example. I've been listening to the audiobook version of the um, biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he was a prime example of that kind of action. Bonhoeffer was a German man who was widely respected and trained in ministry. He traveled from Germany into America and did further training in, in the ministry here in North America. In North America, he found himself absolutely taken with and bonded to caring for the oppressed church of that day, which was the African-American church. He was taken with the plight of the persecuted African-American people. And that earned him zero favors with the intellectual and religious circles in which he ran. But that was just the beginning. Amongst the rise of the Third Reich in Hitler's Germany, Bonhoeffer was a prominent critic of Hitler and a staunch opponent of the Nazi regime and their influence over the German church, and particularly of the treatment and the plight of the Jewish people. And the thing that absolutely blew my mind as I'm reading this is that Bonhoeffer had every opportunity to remain an outside critic. He traveled regularly to London, to America, and when things got really, really bad in Germany, he had every opportunity to go to America or London and write some papers and some articles and do some radio interviews and critique the Third Reich from safety. But instead, he continued to support and minister in Germany in the confessing church, the church that refused to comply with Hitler's demands of the national church in Germany. He was a prominent member of that church and instrumental in building that church. And he even participated in direct resistance against Hitler. That led to his arrest in April of 1943 by the Gestapo, his imprisonment for a year and a half at Tegel Prison, his being transferred to Flossenburg concentration camp, and his hanging on April 9th in 1945, just as the regime was collapsing. Today, too, particularly here in Canada, we have every opportunity to support the marginalized, persecuted, and the imprisoned people from the outside. The modern example that I see all the time is the Facebook profile frames. The prayers for 
whatever thing is going on around the world. I stand with whoever it is. But that's as far as it goes. Sending prayers and good vibes. Private prayers and quiet support. Private prayers and quiet support is great. It is necessary. We should be praying privately and quietly supporting those around the world and locally who are persecuted and mistreated. But those brothers and sisters who suffer are a part of the body. As 1 Corinthians 12, 26 remind us, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We cannot just be quiet supporters, hiding our true hearts and our true thoughts, or even just supporting in non-threatening ways, ways that cost us nothing. Our brothers and our sisters around the world are suffering. Let's care for them and support them by whatever means necessary. And we have had the blessing in the North American church for living for decades and even centuries in a culture that often tolerated and even sometimes celebrated the pursuit of the gospel. But if you look around, those days are gone. Pastors have been arrested for attempting to faithfully pursue what they interpret through Scripture. Christian business owners have been boycotted and run out of business and threatened for their stance on marriage and other matters of scriptural conviction. We've had plenty of conversation about Bill C-4 here in this church, how that bill has made myself and any other biblical counselor who would deny the legitimacy of a homosexual lifestyle and relationship made it a criminal act to do so. So while we may not currently have heaps of persecuted brothers and sisters in prison that we know of here in Canada, that we know intimately, those who are being mistreated for the sake of the gospel are growing. And the numbers of the imprisoned for the gospel in Canada are not likely to shrink anytime soon either. As one suffers, so do we all. We love our brothers and our sisters, particularly those who are imprisoned or mistreated for the sake of the gospel. And as we do so, we say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Perhaps what I was just saying may have clarified a little bit the need for including respecting the marriage bed in the list of showing brotherly affection. The marriage bed, the family, is the bond of which Jesus said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. That bond has always been one of the first to come under attack because of its foundational root in human existence. The family is a fundamental building block of life from the very beginning of creation. And that's why it so quickly comes under attack in the faithful church. Pornography, physical, mental, emotional, adultery, 
general sexual immorality have been the downfall of so many within the church from the bottom to the top. And so let brotherly love continue. So much of this sexual immorality that has happened within the church has happened within the church. Brothers, any but your own wife is off limits. Sisters, any but your own husband is off limits. And if we see even a whiff of sexual immorality, if we get a hint of sexual immorality from a brother or a sister in our church, it's not a time for gossip or slander. It's not a time to go to the other people in the church and be like, did you see? Did you hear? It is a time for holy exhortation based out of brotherly love. Not from a pious, holier-than-thou pedestal, but from the bond of brotherly love that wants to see healing and a lack of further injury to a brother or sister. When we look into the world around us, it should not surprise us that sexual immorality is rampant. The rise of the LGBTQ movement, the normalcy of premarital sex and cohabitation, the success of the pornography and human trafficking industries, all of that should be expected of a world living outside of the commands of Scripture. But it should not be so within the church. And being so deeply surrounded by the things of the world, each one of us goes into that world every day and is surrounded by that kind of immorality. So if you go and spend six days a week surrounded by sexual immorality in the world, and then you come here to church and we are afraid to say the word sex in church. We are afraid to have conversations about sexual immorality with our brothers and sisters. Then where are we getting our encouragement and where are we getting our building up and where are we getting our protection from what we are going to face out there? Or not. So don't be afraid to have those conversations with your brothers and your sisters here. Don't be afraid to talk with your brothers and sisters about how they're doing. I cannot think, and this is just being honest, I cannot think of the last time where I've had brothers come up to me and be like, so how's your marriage doing? We should be asking those kind of questions of our brothers and sisters regularly. And as we do so, we become able to show brotherly love to each other. We receive that brotherly love, and we strengthen the brotherhood as we go out into the world. That is how we combat the rise of sexual immorality in our world. And combat it we will, regardless of the consequences, for the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? And that question becomes really real in the LGBTQ world that we live in. Because what can man do to me? Well, there's plenty that man can do to me. 
But all that pales in comparison to what God has done and what God continues to do. And the last one, we are to keep our lives free from the love of money and be content with what we have. At first, when I was looking at it, that seemed like an odd inclusion here in the discourse. Even just reading this passage originally, it read a little bit more like the book of Proverbs, where it was kind of bouncing around a whole bunch of different little topics. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, The love of money is a root, a root, of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The love of money, the pursuit of money as an idol, rivals sexual immorality within the church as the greatest killer of Christian faith and corrupter of Christian conscience. And I think the root of it is that neither sex nor money is a bad thing. God has given us both sex and money as good gifts, things to be used for his glory and given to his people to be used rightly. But Satan's ever-present great scheme is to take what God has given that is good and twist it and turn it into something that he uses for evil. If we are to love the brothers well and rightly, then we must keep our lives free from the love of money. Jesus' words in Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters, for he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Not to put too fine a point on this, but I imagine that almost every one of us who are employed for financial gain went to work this week. Fairly reasonable assumption. Unless you're week on, week off, then maybe you'll go to work next week. I know that we do so to provide for our family, and that is a good thing. We are told in Scripture that we are to provide for our family. Even Paul worked with his own two hands so that he wouldn't be a burden on the churches that he was going and ministering to. But all of us who worked for a paycheck this week probably worked for 40 or more hours a week, 150 or more hours a month, 1,800 or more hours per year. But how many hours do we spend per week making sure that we are loving the brethren? How many hours do we set aside for service to God's people and his church? And that does not and cannot include just going to church. For to come to church and to fill a pew is no service to the church. For to come to church and give money to the church is no service to God. God doesn't need extra butts in the pews. God doesn't need our money. God needs people who are willing to worship him with the use of their money and their time. And I'm not here to give you a breakdown of how many hours you should spend serving the church or how many dollars you need to be putting in the offering plate. That is between you and God. You need to be spending time in Scripture and coming to a firm conviction as to how you could be doing those things. But you should be serving your Christian brothers and sisters in the church. 
And there's a million ways to do this. You can serve as a deacon or an elder. You can help care for our church facilities. You can invite church family members into your home, not just for a social where you can visit with one another, but you can be praying for and ministering to each other, being intentional about the way we do those things. You can volunteer your time as a Sunday school teacher or a youth group or Kids Rock and make Tony happy. I forgot. You can help her clean tables on August 25th. She needs help cleaning tables downstairs. Those are just a few of the opportunities that we have to love the brethren in such a way. But whatever you do with your time and with your money and with whatever God has given you, it should reflect the love of your heart. And if you reflect on your own heart and find that the love of money has taken hold there, turn that love upon Christ. And then necessarily that will result in a return to brotherly love as well. And we are able to do so. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We've covered a lot here this morning. But as we close, I want us to remember the first and second commandments given by our Lord in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Chapter 12 of Hebrews was all about turning our eyes towards Christ, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. But if we find our eyes fixed upon Jesus, if we love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we will also love our neighbor. And we will have a particular fondness and love for our brothers and our sisters. And that love for God and the love for our neighbors is going to be costly. It will require effort and time and money. It will be hard. And the pursuit of these things will not come easily. And it will result in our world looking at us and going, why would you bother? Why would you spend your time, your money, your existence chasing after a God you cannot even see? But to do so, we know that we have the Lord as our helper. He is with us as we do so. And we know that man can do nothing against the work of our Lord. Imagine a church where we have committed daily to the display of hospitality to one another where we have committed to seeing that the marriages in our midst are taken care of and lifted up and bolstered, to see a church where we have purged the love of money, to be a part of such a church will be of incredible encouragement to our brothers and our sisters. It will be 
an entirely different family from the one that we know and we were born into. And if you don't know what it is to be a part of a family of faith like that, if as we celebrated the Lord's table earlier this morning, you heard the truths of what Jesus suffered, you heard this whole family proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes, proclaiming the resurrection of our Savior, if you find in your heart a desire to respond in faith to the truths that are proclaimed there and join the family of Christ, you must confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. There's no secret formula. There's no word-for-word prayer that you have to say. We all are familiar with the sinner's prayer that people talk about at church camps and whatever else. The sinner's prayer is sometimes just crying out to God, God, I am broken. I am sinful. I need you. Here I am. We must believe. We must ask God to forgive our sins where we have disobeyed him. And we make Jesus the Lord of our life and become people who are living our lives according to the commands of Scripture. Not perfectly, but growing in righteousness. And we cannot do it alone. So if you make a commitment like that, if you have given your heart and your life to Jesus, make sure you let your brothers and sisters know. Make sure that You as Christian brothers and sisters who are firm in the faith, make sure that you're reaching out to the people who have spent time with us and say, so what did you think? You hear of someone watching this online. Say, hey, did you get a chance to watch this? What did you think? And welcome our brothers and sisters, whether from here or from abroad, into our church family. And we will show brotherly love to one another for the good of the brotherhood and for the glory of our God. Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, You have created the church You have put us together for a reason. You have given us your instruction in your word and you have commanded us to see your word preached and the truth proclaimed in your churches. And you've done so that we might know you. Not just intellectually, but know you through our head and our heart and to follow you wholeheartedly. And you've created us as mankind with a desire to do things in community. We don't survive well alone. And Lord, I pray that those here in this church would not attempt to live a Christian life alone, but that we would depend on our time with our brothers and sisters, not just on Sunday mornings, not just in the foyer before and after, but throughout the week that we might be gathering with and joining and encouraging one another that we might be showing hospitality to one another, inviting each other over, spending time together, not just to laugh and play and fish and eat, but also to 
strengthen and encourage and equip and exhort one another with the commands and truths of Scripture. And Lord, as we grow as a church body, as we see this come into existence and morph and grow in our hearts and our lives, we pray that we would glorify you all the more. And that we would look at the things of the world that have at one time held such attraction to us and then look back at your goodness, your grace, and the church family that you have given us and shake our heads and go, why would I want that when I have this? Why would I want what the world has to offer that turns to ashes in my mouth when I can have what you have given me in your word and in your church? And Lord, this will not always be easy. Our world will kick against it and kick against us for doing so. And I pray that you would give us the strength and the courage to pursue these things no matter what. Knowing that what you have set before us is far greater than anything that the world can do against us. So Lord, I commit this church into your hands. I commit each brother and sister who is here, each brother and sister who is listening, each brother or sister who will listen, and ask that we might truly love one another as brothers and sisters. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I ask that you would stand with me as you're able and hear our benediction from Hebrews 13. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.